This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us on the program. And uh, we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to be trying a couple new things, which uh, hopefully the technology cooperates with us. We're, we're trying something different, something new a little bit later on, but hopefully it all pans out, everything will be working but we have a big show tonight we have Faulkner president Mike uh, Mike Williams and almost mispronounces his name which is it's a really simple one uh, but Faulkner president Mike Williams is going to be on the show a little bit later but before we get to him and we of course get to the big Supreme Court decision which is going to be coming down the pipe a little bit later in the show let's go ahead and talk about something that you know I usually like to start out the show with local news, and I'm kind of doing that because it is local news, but I almost always stick to state news, although this is by definition some other state's news, but it does affect us, and I do think that it's actually somewhat important to discuss this because of the larger ramifications, especially for us. The story I'm talking about is Mississippi, and Mississippi has actually announced that their Congress has already voted and that they have decided to go ahead and, and pass a bill that would change their state's flag. And the state flag has the emblem of, it's actually a, uh, a depiction of the battle flag of Virginia uh, up in its, I don't even know how to, I'm not a flagologist or whatever. I know there's people that study this stuff. There's an actual name for being up there in the, uh, uh, in the corner of the flag, but anyway, suffice it to say, it, it resembles the rebel flag, the ones that we're all familiar with, the stars and bars, that kind of thing. And so, uh, because of that, they actually have changed, and of course, part of the reason that I want to talk about it is because of it, it is big news, and the governor is expected to sign it, that he's already expressed interest in changing the state's flag, and so they expect that he's going to sign it, Mississippi's going to be getting a new flag, but it also does have implications for the state of Alabama because, of course, we're a Confederate state, too. Some of that symbolism still kind of lives on with us, and so we're going to be discussing that very quickly. Uh, so Mississippi's Congress passed this bill just, like, literally an hour or two ago, so it's not been very long at all. And what this does, what this bill does, which I'm, I'm glad to see this because initially I just saw the headline, I was like, Oh gosh, they voted to get rid of the flag, but they didn't vote to replace it. And I'm not picking at Mississippi because I kind of feel like that's something Alabama state legislature would have done as well. Very, very um, a quick response, very short-sighted. And because of the circumstances surrounding how this particular bill came into effect, the way that they rushed it through very quickly, I was thinking that something like that was at least plausible. And by the way, this would not be unprecedented for the state of Mississippi. In fact, they didn't realize that they had repealed the official flag, and the Supreme Court of Mississippi actually realized that they spent like 100 years without an official flag. <laughs> like, they discovered in 2001 that the flag that they had adopted had been repealed since like the very early 1900s, so they went almost an entire century without an official flag, not even realizing that they had made the flag that they had not the official flag, and they had to, to make it official back in 2001. So I'm, I'm not picking at Mississippi, but 
let's be honest, you could see them doing something like this, but that's actually not what happened. They This bill does set up a committee. It sets up a, uh, a commission for a new flag, and so they are going to have a new flag. They are going to... They have a process already in place. It was written into the bill to be able to decide the new flag. And an interesting stipulation, the only one that I saw in any of the articles that I read, is that the new flag must include the words, In God We Trust. Now, I'm not sure exactly how that works. Maybe it could be like real, real little to where you can't even see it at the bottom. Maybe it could be really, really big. Maybe it's going to be in one of those. Uh, maybe they should. their flag should just be like some kind of weird 3D art thing where you have to like squint to see the words in God you trust. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't think they would actually do that. But anyway, that seems to be the only stipulation. There will be several designs that are submitted. And then in November, when, of course, the election does come up, People will be able to vote on it. The citizens of Mississippi will vote for their new flag. Now, that could wind up being really interesting. To be perfectly honest, I almost want it to be like that episode of Parks and Rec where they're trying to vote on the new town slogan or motto or whatever it was that they were deciding on. And and you can tell that this has a special place in my heart being a radio guy. The two radio guys got together and started a campaign for Pawnee, home of the stick-up Leslie Nope's butt, and it became like an actual contender for the town motto. Uh, I kind of want that to happen just because, I don't know, there's there's a chaotic side of me that would love to see. I know that they're not actually going to do that, but I don't know. It would just be hilarious if they pulled something like that, but... That design will be voted on by the citizens of the state of Mississippi in November. I did want to get into a little bit of the history here because I think it's important and I think it also provides some interesting context for how all of this is going, exactly how they they got to this point and how they need the new flag in the first place. So what we'll go ahead is this was the original state flag of the state of Mississippi but it only lasted for four years. So this was the flag known as the Magnolia flag, which was Mississippi's official state flag from the years 1861 to the years 1865. Now you may be wondering, well now, hold on a second. 1865, so what, they, they only had this flag while they were in the Confederacy? Yeah, pretty much. The thing about this flag is once they were defeated and, of course, the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse by General Lee and the war was over, the states were reunited, that flag was no longer official. And so they rocked along for a little while without an official state flag. And then they finally adopted a new state flag in 1894. And you can see that design here, which is the design that they just voted to replace. So this is an actual flag. You can see it's got the... Um, I believe the official flag, this one is not, but I, I, if I'm not mistaken, the official flag of the state of Mississippi, which this one seems to have its proportions just a little bit off, uh, the rebel flag up in the corner is actually a perfect square. Now, if there is anybody that's an expert on this that's watching me and I'm getting this wrong, I apologize, but yeah, I, I believe that that is actually the, the canton, I believe is the correct phrase for that is supposed to be a perfect square. And maybe it is in there and you just can't tell because of the angle or something, but that's supposed to be a perfect square. And so that would be actually a remodel of the battle flag of the 1st Regiment of Virginia. 
And so it is a node, uh, it is a, a nod or an ode to the Confederacy. And that symbol kind of became synonymous with the Confederacy. Normally what we think of as the Confederate flag actually isn't the Confederate flag. It's a more commonly referred to as a Confederate battle flag or the rebel flag. The Confederacy had three different designs. I'm not going to go into the history of all of those because we'd be here all night. But uh, anyway, suffice it to say that Mississippi did adopt that knowing that it had a connection to the Confederacy. It was sort of a nod back to that. And they did so in 1894, which, you know, would would stand to reason considering the political climate of Mississippi at that time. That was, of course, during Reconstruction. And Mississippi would have loved nothing more than to give a giant middle finger to the carpetbaggers. <laughs> and that was probably how they did it, is adopting a official flag. I'm not saying that, that was the only reason, but... I got to feel like any Southern state that was going through that and, and with some of the terrible things that did happen with them, not saying, you know, I don't want to get into that discussion. I'm just saying that that would have been how they felt about it, their sentiment. And so you can understand why Mississippi did that. Although I will say this, and this is important as well. A lot of the state symbols, like, for example, the, uh, the flags going up over the state capitals in the Southern states, and a lot, several of the states decided that they would start flying a Confederate flag along with the state flag and the United States flag. And a lot of them did that. That was basically, at that time in its history, it was a giant middle finger to black people in the middle of the Civil Rights era. This is something that they did specifically as a way to basically signal to them that they did not support the Civil Rights Act, they did not support the Civil Rights Movement, and so it was something that a lot of politicians back in the day did as sort of a an, an up yours to black people, unfortunately. And of course, that's you know horrible that that took place. But it's important to note that this did not happen as a result of that. It was more likely animosity towards northern carpetbaggers that were coming down here and trying to run things. And, and this happened during Reconstruction. And so it's much more likely that that was actually the motive behind this one. Other states different story. But in the case of Mississippi, just based on the history and what was going on at the time, it's more than likely that that was actually where their animus was aimed at. And like I said, they wound up like actually not officially having a flag for about a hundred years. What's ironic too about this is that this is the result of repealing its Civil War era policies. So the reason that the flag crops up there in 1894 is because they had essentially repealed everything that had taken place in the Civil War, and they were trying to get their house in order, trying to cobble everything together. By the way, just a few years later, Alabama would essentially do the same thing and adopt the 1901 Constitution. Uh, now, of course, there were all kinds of problems with it as well, but that's really beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. Suffice it to say that all of the southern states were kind of trying to get its legs back up uh, up underneath it to where it could get moving forward around this time period in the nation's history. Mississippi was, of course, no exception to that. And so, ironically, the flag that bears a Confederate emblem, a, a nod back to the Confederacy in it that just got replaced, or, or at least voted to be replaced today, that very flag is the result of them repealing their Civil War era laws. So I do find that kind of, you know, a kind of a goofy coincidence, if nothing else. 
And it's also possible that the rebel flag, what we refer to as the rebel flag or the Confederate flag today, actually still exists because of this. Because the battle flag of the 1st Regiment of Virginia, which is the symbol that you see there, the, the X with the stars and the red, that was something that was adopted by the uh, adopted by Virginia, and then it was later expanded and adopted by Tennessee. So, what became the battle flag of the Tennessee is actually the design that we're more commonly uh, familiar with. Is the one where it spread out, and the whole flag is an X, as opposed to it being a perfect square, which is the way that the Mississippi flag is, and also the way the state of Virginia's battle flag in, in the First Regiment was. And so, Tennessee adopted it there. That may have had a lot to do with it, but also the fact that this emblem, this design winds up on a official state flag of a southern state, a former Confederate state, that may be part of the reason this symbol survives. It's quite possible we would not be having this discussion today if they had gone with a different design. Now, of course, if they had gone with a different design, we wouldn't be discussing it anyway because they probably wouldn't be repealing it right now. But my point in all of that is we may not be having this discussion or have had this discussion like back in 2015 where we were talking about the rebel flag flying over the capital of South Carolina. There's at least a chance we don't even have that conversation if Mississippi had not adopted this as part of its flag, and so it kind of carried it over. It made it sort of a symbol that was synonymous with the Confederacy, and we see the results that we, of course, have today. So... Ultimately, let, let's get into the wisdom of this. I think it's both politically and practically a good move. Politically, I just think that it's, it's easier to have something that is not going to offend people and, and represents the state more accurately. From a wisdom standpoint, I think it's just smarter to do this. I'm somebody that is not in any way in favor of tearing down monuments, even to people that I really, really, really don't like. I mean, there is not a president I loathe more than Woodrow Wilson, and I spent a large portion of my day today arguing that Woodrow Wilson's name should not be taken off of the building there at Princeton where he was president of the, the university before he was president of the United States. I can't stand Woodrow Wilson, and I don't want that to happen. I'm also, as you know, a minister, a very patriotic person, and also a very religious person. So to me, a very important place in this country is the National Cathedral. Do you know who is buried inside the National Cathedral? Woodrow Wilson. I don't want him moved. I don't want his remains moved somewhere else because he was a horrible president, a horrible racist, expanded federal power. I'm not going to go too far off off the trail here on Woodrow Wilson, because I'll be here for three hours just discussing some of his policies, but suffice it to say, can't stand the guy. And yet, I don't want him moved out of the National Cathedral. I think that's important that he's there. He's the only president interned there. And I don't like it. I don't like the fact that that decision was made, but historically it is important, and it's also to, important to remember that there were people that not only thought he was a good man and a good president, there are also people that thought he was a religious Christian man, enough to where they actually put his remains in the National Cathedral. And just like the monuments to people that I don't think were necessarily good people, like Jefferson Davis or Vladimir Lenin, and yes, those do exist, 
There's a bust of Margaret Sanger in the Smithsonian. There is Malcolm X statues. There's two or three of those in America. Even people I vehemently, vehemently disagree with and don't like, and frankly, had I been alive at the time and people wanted to dedicate a statue to them at the time, I would have opposed it. The fact that there were people that thought that they were people that were worthy of honor is a giant testament to the folly and the ease that mankind can slip into sin and error. And I think that that's a good thing. Human beings, by, very, by our very nature, we tend to not learn our lessons, we tend to be slow learners, we tend to slip back into our old habits and our old sins very, very easily, and so having giant monuments to humanity's stupidity all over the place, I think is a really, really good thing. I don't think that the flag discussion is the same discussion, and here's why. When it comes to the flag, this is a state flag that is supposed to be a symbol for the state and what it stands for. The rebel flag, even though, yes, it does look cool, and I, I like the look of it personally, it is a foreign flag. It would be no different than if we had a state that flew, for example, the British flag as a part of its state flag. Well, that would be completely inappropriate. They're flying a foreign flag... Yes, the state may have been under that jurisdiction at one time. Or, or let's, let's take Louisiana, who at one time was a part of the French Empire. Would it be appropriate for Louisiana to have the French flag as a part of its design? I would say no. Maybe something that alludes to its culture would be okay. Maybe something that alludes to Louisiana itself. But just having the French flag as a part of its flag's design... I don't think so. That seems to me to, to almost signal dual loyalty, and I'm not accusing Mississippi of that. I know that's not what they mean by having it. I mean, it's, it's been there for a long time, and they haven't rebuilt since then. I, I get that. But I'm just saying that that's one place where I really think that it's better to break that and, and to not be uh, there. So don't, don't remove history. Don't remove the monuments. Keep them where they are. But I actually think this was a good move. I actually think that this was smart. I don't have a problem with them changing the state flag. I, and, and here's another thing, too, when it comes to the statues. I think that states and municipalities and towns ought to be able to make that decision for themselves, even though I disagree if they think that it should be taken down. But Mississippi did this the right way. They didn't have a bunch of rioters and people coming and showing up and taking down the flag and putting up a new flag and them just going, oh, well, I guess they've torn it down. There's nothing we can do about it. This happened the way that it's supposed to. Even though I agree with the decision, even if I hadn't, this was the right way to handle it. I would disagree with their decision to take down a bunch of old Confederate statues, but if they are going to do that, they don't need to let the mob rule. They need to let it be done by the people, by their decision, the people that are actually going to have to live there. Those are the ones that should be making that final decision. And so, ultimately, I, I think that it's important to understand both sides in this. Because there are a lot of people that are going to be making the argument, and I'm sympathetic to the argument. doesn't mean I agree with it, but I am sympathetic to it. That the reason that that was there and the reason that people today fly the rebel flag, the Confederate flag, whatever you want to call it, even though it's, it's technically not the Confederate flag. The reason that they want it there is because it's a part of their heritage.
They have pride as Southerners. They are proud of where they are. And because of that, they would like to have the flag as an emblem to represent that. Okay, I get that. But guess what? The original colonists, before everything happened with the revolution, they were proud to be British. They were. That was a part of their heritage, something that they were proud of. There was, just like there is today, a sense of patriotism. There were some founders that were far more patriotic when it came to being British than others. Alexander Hamilton and John Adams come to mind, who, even though they did support the cause of liberty and breaking with the king and, and breaking with England eventually, it was a hard sell for them. It took them a lot longer to get there than a lot of the others, and they were more patriotically British, even after the revolution to a degree. Uh, than they were beforehand, but they still decided to make that clean break. And I think that that's one thing that Mississippi has kind of failed to do. You can be patriotic for your state. You can be patriotic being from the South. Believe me, I am. Born and bred in Alabama. Always, I've, I've lived here my entire life. I've never lived in any place outside the state of Alabama. I've lived in Auburn for a while when I was at college. but So I've lived in different cities, but I've always lived within the state of Alabama. And I love being from Alabama. I don't shy away from it. I mean, my, my show is a dedication to Alabama State News. Obviously, it's something that's really important to me. But that there are other ways to express that, and we'll get to that in a second. So ultimately, what this does boil down to is a communication issue. And this is where I get to use my fancy Auburn degree that I paid thousands and thousands of dollars for. So, you know, kids, you can pay thousands of dollars for a college diploma and be able to do goofy one-off sideshows on an internet show. <laughs> That's why you get your diploma. Um, so we'll go ahead and check this out because uh, this is where my communication degree really comes in handy is that there is a, a pretty big miscommunication problem. And I'm not going to give you an entire lecture on human communication and how it works, but this is the, the long and short of it. This is the basics. And you can see there that you have the source. That's the person that wants to send the message. And then they encode the message. And the encoding process is basically from your brain to your mouth, if this is done through verbal communication. So it's, it's that process of trying to figure out how to distill what idea you want to convey and encoding it into some kind of messaging system. And then you have the transmission. The transmission is the mode of communication that you choose to use. So for example, right now, if you're watching me on the internet, then the transmission is the internet. And the transmission is my microphone. And the transmission is my soundboard and my computer and your speakers and all of those things. That's a part of transmission. In fact, this is where we get the word or the idea of media. So the medium on which we are communicating, in this case the internet, would be the form of transmission. And then once you hear that message, there is a decoding process. So you start breaking down and trying to comprehend and understand the message that was sent to you. And then finally, there is the receiver. That is, of course, the person that gets the message, and then there's feedback from the receiver, there's noise, but we're going to kind of ignore that part just for our purposes here tonight, because, uh, of course, we could get into that, but that's going to take way too long. So here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to actually show you how this works and, and give you some examples to help you understand how really this whole thing has been misunderstood from the very beginning by both sides, by both sides. 
So I'm going to give you an example to help you out here. So let's say the source is back in World War II is the Nazis. And the transmission is the swastika, the Nazi flag. So this is a symbol, means Nazism. We're all familiar with it. And then the receiver of the message would be the Jews. Okay, so what is the encoded message that the Nazis were trying to send? Well, that message would have been, well, we hate the Jews, which, of course, they described, unfortunately, in, in cataclysmic style. And then the decoded message is, we hate the Jews. Okay, no communication hang-ups right here. Now, of course, the message itself is horrible, but there is no miscommunication here. Everybody understands one another. The Nazis are saying, we hate the Jews. The Jews are understanding, unfortunately, loud and clear exactly what that means. And so this is a good example in how a symbol, a flag, could be used as a transmission, a mode to, uh, to communicate a message to somebody, and that's what we're going to use for our purposes tonight. However, this is an example of how that can go wrong. So let's look at post-World War II, where everybody's familiar with the swastika. They know exactly what the swastika means. That's sort of a universal, universally understood symbol now. Or is it? Well, what about Buddhist monks? Some of you may not realize this, but the swastika, now you'll notice that the swastika is actually backwards from the Nazi swastika, and instead of being askew, in other words, sort of diagonal, it's, it's straight up and down, this is actually a Buddhist symbol for, for peace and has been for many, many years, long before the Nazis co-opted it. And then the receivers, of course, would be the Jews again. So if a Jew post-World War II that is aware of the Holocaust were to see a Buddhist monk carrying this around, wearing it on his neck, see a symbol in a temple somewhere, something like that, they might get the message wrong because the Buddhist monk there, what he's trying to communicate with that symbol is, may you have peace. That's what he means by showing that symbol to the world. That is the message that he is broadcasting and projecting by having that symbol on him somewhere or, or around him. But the decoded message from the Jews, if they didn't know that, would understandably be, we hate Jews, because the only time they've ever seen that symbol used, that's the message it was associated with. And so you can see and understand how the message could be misunderstood. That even though the encoder of the message, the source, is putting out what, in his mind, is a very clear and succinct message, even though that is the case, and even though the transmission itself is not quote-unquote bad, the wrong message is being received. And so I think that a very similar thing has happened with what we're, what's going on here, and so I'm going to illustrate here with the rebel flag a similar thing. So if you're looking back in the 1950s, this was when the, the Ku Klux Klan was really sort of taking its reign of terror to a whole new level. And of course, the symbol of transmission, the, the mode of transmission would have been a symbol that they used in the form of the rebel flag. Now, there were people that used this flag that were not associated with the Klan, that didn't mean any kind of harm by it. But let's look at what they meant when they said it this time. And the receiver would have been, of course, the black community. So if you're looking at the encoded message, the encoded message by the Nazis, very similar to the encoded message by the Jews, or sorry, by the uh, Nazis towards the Jews with the swastika, is we hate black people. 
in the decoded message, we hate black people. Okay, well, you know, that's a horrible message, of course. But the lines of communication are actually working. They mean something by that symbol. And the decoded message that the black community is getting from that symbol is correct. Now, let's fast forward to 1961. So the source in this case would be, and I have the South Carolina capital, but this was actually happening, I'm using South Carolina specifically here, but this was happening in southern capitals, several of them, ironically not Alabama's to a degree, or at least not in a way that you could pin it down correctly um, or, or consistently. But we'll just use South Carolina because uh, it's the specific example that was the longest to hold out on this, the longest to not stop doing this, where they started flying the rebel flag over their capital along with the United States flag and their own state flag. Well, of course, the receivers would be the black community again. Now, it's important to note that in 1961, part of the reason that South Carolina and other southern states did this is it was basically a giant middle finger to the black community telling them that they did not support the Civil Rights Act, they did not support the Civil Rights Movement, and this was sort of a intimidation factor may go a little too far, but it was certainly something that was done to communicate that the state did not approve of the actions of the black community and the Civil Rights Movement. So in this one, the encoded message is blacks are inferior. Not quite as strong as we hate black people, but still pretty strong and pretty negative. And because of the association with the Klan, you can understand why the black people would still perceive that message, especially as malicious as it was, as, well, we hate black people. That, that's how they understood the state to be communicating with them while that symbol was present, and that kind of is pretty close to originally what the encoded message actually was. That there were people in the state capitals that wanted to communicate a similar message toward the black community, and and the reason that they were saying blacks were inferior, of course, is they believed that they had less rights or, or should not have their full civil rights like white citizens should. Now let's fast forward to today, and this is important because. You have to remember that especially with people in my generation, and I'm not saying this is a brag because we didn't choose this, this was mostly something done by our parents, the vast majority of the kids that I ran into, your average redneck southern boys, and, and girls of course, but I'm using guys in this particular scenario just because I am one, your average child raised even in the south at this time period was not taught all of this. And I remember back when there was the uh, like Southern Pride, Southern Heritage uh, movement, and, and there was a lot of, uh, what was it, Southern Comfort was the, the clothing company that did a lot of that stuff. Uh, now you have similar things with the Rowdy Gentleman and whatever. So when we saw the Rebel Flag, the only thing that we ever thought about with that, and I can speak from my own experience, maybe there are people that had somewhat of a different experience, but ultimately, the vast majority of the people that I knew of that saw the rebel flag, looked at the rebel flag, they just thought of that as being something of Southern heritage. And then, of course, the black community, they were taught something very different because their parents and grandparents actually experienced the civil rights movement they remember when there were people like the Klan, like their own state governments, unfortunately, that were using this symbol to communicate evil intention to them. 
And so in this case, you have the encoded message of, I love the South. To most people my age, and actually even a little bit older, that were raised in like the late 80s, early 90s, race relations were not perfect, but they weren't that big of an issue for anybody under a certain age. We never really grew up with that. I mean, we went to school where schools had been desegregated for a really long time. Nobody really thought anything about it. I'm not saying that there was no racism or there were no racist kids in this period, but it was an extreme, extreme minority. By and large, people just didn't think about that kind of stuff. We just kind of all thought of each other as equals because that's what we were taught. And when it came to the flag, we always just kind of thought of that as being something, hey, I'm, I'm proud of being from a southern state. I, I love my hometown. I, I love where I'm from. And this is a way for me to communicate that. Unfortunately, like I said, though, when it came to the black community, their kids were taught something completely different. Their kids were taught, and reasonably so considering the history, that that symbol means I hate black people, the same thing that they understood it to mean back in the 1950s and 1960s. And so I say all of this and I do this presentation just to help you understand, do you see how in that scenario, there's no malicious intent from either side. Neither the black community, especially the younger black community that didn't grow up in the, the civil rights era, that didn't grow up in the 50s and 60s and don't remember when there were people doing that, doing public clan displays where they were carrying around the rebel flag, that's not something that they were aware of or, or knew either. But they knew that their parents would point that out and say, well, you know, that's who those people are. And in their experience, normally the people that did fly that flag those people were white supremacists, a lot of them. And they really did want to hurt them. They really did want to keep them from having their full civil rights. But the kids of my generation that were just raised Southern, we weren't taught any of that. We didn't know any of that. To us, that symbol always just meant I'm really proud to be from somewhere south of the Mason-Dixon line. And I am. And so what happens in that situation when you put those elements together, and I know that took a really long time, but I think it's necessary to really digest and understand where everyone is coming from. What that really gives you is one guy on one side that is, you know, maybe wearing a rebel flag t-shirt or has the bumper sticker on his car, and he can't understand why every black kid he runs across despises that because he doesn't mean it that way. He's never been taught that it meant that. None of those things. And then, through no fault of their own, the black kids see it and they see somebody that, that hates them and doesn't like them and thinks of them as inferior. And that's because that's what they've been taught their whole life. And so, same symbol, but completely different message encoding and decoding. And because of that, you get very different sentiments from the symbol than what was intended. And when that happens, not only do you have, obviously, because the wrong message is being understood, the black people that, that see that, not only do you have them being wildly offended, and you can understand why, 
But then when they push back on it, then all of a sudden the white kid that wears the symbol that didn't mean it that way gets offended because you're accusing him of being a racist. I mean, that's one of the most terrible things that you can accuse a person of. And I think that that's correct. That is one of the worst things that a person can be. But you've just accused him of that even though he never intended anything like that. And see, so do you see how you could have two perfectly reasonable, rational people that meant absolutely no harm towards one another all of a sudden at each other's throats? You see how quickly that can escalate? Because I think that's what has happened more or less, and, and especially in the past five or six years. That that's where we have gotten. But ultimately, I think that the solution here, when you've got two sides that are both understandably upset and both had no malice toward one another going into this situation, that I think that the only solution here is to extend as much grace and benefit of the doubt to the other side as possible to be calm and to be patient and to assume that the other person isn't a bad guy. Then when all of a sudden a black person gets wildly offended at you having that symbol either on you or on your truck or, or whatever, that you extend as much grace to him as possible and understand that that's, you know, that's just what he was taught growing up his whole life. In the same way, the other direction, that when the black kid sees the, the white kid with the, the, the rebel flag sticker that he doesn't assume automatically that the guy is a white nationalist that wants to kill every black person he meets. We should be overly generous with the grace, and if we get it wrong, then we get it wrong. Like, if, if that black kid actually does run into a white supremacist, like, for example, Dylan Roof in South Carolina that really did want to kill black people and really did use the did want to use the rebel flag in that way to intimidate black people it's better to get it wrong there to, than to assume that every other person that uses it is some kind of, you know, clan member. And the opposite is also true, to assume that there is no ill intent when somebody is, is aghast by that symbol. And so I think that we should do that which is wise, and it's part of the reason that I don't really use the symbol anymore. It's because it's too much trouble, it might offend people, and you know what, there, there's better symbols out there to use anyway. And there was a sermon that was preached by Brother Brent Misseldine, who, by the way, is the preacher up at the, Cha uh, the, the Prattville Church of Christ and a good friend of mine. And uh, he actually did a, a guest-speaking sermon one time that I was in attendance to, and he made a fantastic point about how Paul especially made some accommodations for people that he didn't have to do all for the sake of making it easier for him to talk to and relate to his fellow brothers in Christ. And there's even a verse that he alluded to where Paul is talking about uh, in Romans the, the sacrifice of meat to idols and what laws are acceptable and not acceptable when you can't eat certain meats and not other meats, which is something that Christians aren't really familiar with today, but back then it was a big deal because you had a lot of Jewish Christians that were debating over whether or not they had to keep the dietary laws or not. And Paul basically answered with, okay, the, the Greek Christians here are actually right. You don't have to adhere to those things, but 
it would be something that violates a person's conscience. And because of that, if I have to never eat meat again to keep my brother from stumbling, I will do it. That is an outpouring of love. That is a willingness to say, even though it may cost me something, if it helps my brother get to heaven, I'll do whatever it takes. I mean, is that not the attitude that we should all reflect? I don't think that it's morally wrong, especially considering that there were a lot of people of my generation that were raised thinking that the flag means nothing other than Southern heritage and I'm proud to be from the South. I don't think there's anything morally wrong with using the flag to that, and I would not assume that anybody that was using the flag as a symbol to, to decorate their home or something like that was doing something wrong. I don't think that that's correct. But what I will add and what I will say is, maybe that's something that we need to think about in the way that Paul did. If it's something that's causing problems, if it's something that's going to be a hindrance or a hurdle to spreading the gospel or communicating the love of Christ to another person, maybe we got to reconsider whether or not that is something that is worth being used here. And from the political realm, frankly, I think it was very unwise for Republicans to make this their hill to die on. And I said that even back in, in 2015 when we were debating all this with connection to the shooting that it was so ridiculous that Republicans have made this like their big issue. I mean, for Pete's sake, we've had, we've had 60 million children killed in their mother's womb. Do we not have better things to worry about than this? And so, ultimately, I do think that it comes down to a, a message of, let's pick our battles more wisely, and let's maybe take some reevaluation into whether these things are, are actually worth saving or not. Because, frankly, just as a Southerner that grew up around it, I like the, the Confederate flag. I, I like the rebel flag. It looks cool. And it's a cool little bit of history. It kind of like my, you know, my other historic, uh, I don't even know, uh, knickknacks or whatever that I collect. Uh, that, that's just something that I find interesting and cool. Maybe since it might hurt my ability to share the gospel with others, maybe that's something I don't need to necessarily display in public. Or unless it's somebody that I know is already comfortable with it and, and okay with it, or somebody that may be into history. Because I don't want to give off the wrong message. And if I'm ever transmitting anything, to go back to our communication theory, anything other than I love that person because they are another human being created in the image of God, I, I got to do some reevaluation. See, because there's times where when we offend one another, it's worth it. The gospel offends people all the time. If you tell somebody that is neck deep in postmodernist thinking and you tell them that there is an objective truth and there is a right and wrong, that's going to offend them, but you still have to tell them. This, I don't think you can make the case that it's something that you need to hang on to real tight. And I don't convict anybody that uses the symbol if, as long as it's not motivated by any kind of malice or, or malcontent in their heart for their brother. But I do have to question their wisdom in continuing to do that, knowing that it may hurt their ability 
to talk to others about Christ. And when it comes to this, now there are better ways to display Southern heritage. One thing that has become very popular, and you can see this at places like Canucan's or the outdoor store or other places that sell this kind of trendy uh, salt life kind of stuff. I don't even know really how to describe it. You'll notice that there has been a trend in recent years, especially with like the, the Gen Z people, that the kind of stuff that they have has things like the state flag or the state of Alabama, the shape of it. I was actually watching a broadcast from a, a friend of mine that does internet broadcasts, just like me, uh, that he had on this morning a hat that had the outline of the state of Alabama on his hat and it had the American flag in it. You see, that's a way to communicate, hey, I'm from the South, I'm proud to be from the South, I love being from the South, and I also love this country. I was actually talking to a buddy of mine earlier today, and he was saying, I find it really interesting that there are people that continue to use the rebel flag, and they're also super patriotic. Because, of course, the, the people that originally used the rebel flag, they did not like America. <laughs> they really didn't like America. And uh, they didn't like it so much that they were going to secede from the Union and America was the enemy. Well, yeah, that's true. They did kind of see themselves as the rightful heirs to America. That's also true. But ultimately, he's right that it is funny that a lot of the people that are going to be out there waving the, the rebel flag or have it hanging outside their house or have it on their car, right next to it, there's an American flag. And they just happen to be super patriotic people. Well, again, that shows exactly what I was talking about. That the vast majority of people nowadays that fly that flag, they don't want to rebel against the country. They don't want to reinstitute slavery. They don't want Jim Crow to come back. None of those things are what they want or what they wish to communicate with that flag. It's just kind of a, I'm from Alabama. Heck yeah. I mean, that, that's really about all it is. It's no different than flying an Auburn flag or an Alabama flag in a lot of ways, except for the negative connotation that comes with it that we just talked about. And so ultimately, the reason that I bring all that up is nowadays, I think there's just better ways to do that. You want to show pride for, for being from the South? I get that. I do. I feel that as well. Fly the state flag. Fly something else. Uh, uh, fly something that displays Southern heritage in a different way. This, this has been something that's been very popular with younger people uh, to have either like the, the state of Alabama with the state flag in it, or I've seen the same for Mississippi and Georgia. And so maybe that's just a better way to communicate that without all of the, the pain and hurt feelings that comes with it. And now that the state of Mississippi is going to be changing their state flag, they can actually do exactly the same thing with their state flag, whatever the new one will look like, and, and display their heritage that way as well. I think that that's actually just a much more healthy way to basically convey exactly the same message. But ultimately, I think that the problem that has sprung from this is that there is a lack of desire to understand. And there are some people... Yes, that, that want this to be a hill that they will die on, that they will fight to their last breath to be able to have the, as goofy as this may seem, to have the rebel flag flying up over the state capitol for some reason, because I don't know, I don't get it, but that's really, really important to them. And there are also people on the left, uh, some in the black community, some actually not in the black community, ironically enough, that want so badly to be victims 
to be able to claim that victim status and to be offended at every little thing that even when you explain to them, no, that, that's not what I mean at all. I don't have any malice towards my heart, toward black people or anybody else. I just really like living in the South. They won't accept that answer because they love being the victim and they love virtue signaling to everybody else how superior they are and how morally inferior you are. Because in intersectionality land, being able to morally drag someone else down is the ultimate testament to how virtuous you are. It doesn't make any sense because it's not based on reason, but you understand what I'm saying. So yeah, there are bad actors out there, and there are people like that that are either going to, to make keeping the rebel flag high and flying over state capitals the hill that they want to die on, and there are also bad faith actors that just want to be victims and are going to be offended no matter what it is, and as soon as they get rid of the rebel flag, they're going to come after anything else. Once they get rid of the Confederate statues, they're coming after Jefferson and Washington, and then Lincoln and, and Teddy Roosevelt and everybody else. Yes, those bad faith actors are out there, but the more that we realize that they are just a loud minority, and the vast majority of people are willing to extend grace to somebody, they're willing to learn, they're willing to listen, I think that's going to make our conversations a lot more productive. All right, we have President Mike Williams, the president of Faulkner University. He is coming up in just a second after this break. We'll be back. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. My next guest is the president. No, not President Donald Trump, even though that would be cool as well. We've got somebody that I think is is equally as important, especially to the community of Montgomery, probably more so to this particular community, and uh, somebody that is also technically my boss. So I'm hoping that this interview goes really well. Uh, without further ado, the president of Faulkner University, President Mike Williams. Thank you for being on the program. Hi. Well, thank you, Caleb. Great to be with you, and uh, thank you for kind introduction. And uh, good to be a part of this program today. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. And uh, I, you and I both know why you're here, but the audience may not have heard the news yet. And so, if you would go ahead and give some details, it turns out that Faulkner University is expanding, and there was some really big news breaking on that the other day. So, if you would just tell the audience exactly what happened. Yeah, sure, Caleb. Yeah, yesterday was really a great historic day for the university. Um, as you know, uh, and many of your listeners may uh, know, is that we've launched the Center for Health Sciences to, uh, you know, really prepare more um, students for professional life in healthcare. Uh, the needs in our community are, uh, you know, nearing epidemic as far as the need for qualified, talented professionals. And so we've launched the Center for Health Sciences. And yesterday we announced the acquisition of uh, the Montgomery uh, Plaza, which is just adjacent to our campus. It's about 13 additional acres. And we're going to transform that uh, that uh, former shopping plaza into our new Center for Health Sciences. Uh, and so it's really an exciting opportunity uh, for the university. But I think uh, also very important to Montgomery and uh, a reinvestment in the community. Well, one thing that has been shown over time that when you're looking at the the lifespan and the the economic 
uh, vitality of a community, one of the really big things that is a contributing factor is the educational opportunities and facilities there. And with a city like Montgomery that tends to be a little bit older in its demographics and tends to not have quite as many young people, I think that this is a fantastic move forward for the entire city of Montgomery, specifically because it draws high quality young people that would, I mean, by definition, if they're coming to Faulkner, getting a college education and it really could showcase the city of Montgomery and benefit us as a, as a whole community as well. Absolutely, Kayla. In fact, I mentioned that in the press conference yesterday that, you know, economic development, uh, you know, is, is about more of talent acquisition. And for us, you know, a great opportunity to recruit these talented individuals from literally all over the country that will come and be a part of the uh, College of Health Sciences. And then if we can integrate them into the community, integrate them into churches, nonprofits, you know, communities, uh, in our city, uh, it's just a great opportunity for us to lock them down, and hopefully they'll see Montgomery as a, a great place to, you know, put their roots down, raise a family, and really contribute to the progress of uh, Montgomery and the River region. You've talked a lot about the health sciences and, and what that's going to bring, but a lot of people may not know specifically exactly what all that entails. So uh, could you just sort of give us an idea of some of the majors and programs that Faulkner will be able to offer as a result of this expansion? Sure, Caleb. Yeah, the, we've launched the College of Health Sciences uh, in 2018, and the first degree program that was uh, put together was a master's degree program in speech and language therapy. In fact, we just had our graduating class, uh, first graduating class in May. And uh, to give you a perspective on the needs just in Montgomery, there's about a nine-month wait uh, right now for speech and language therapy. And so if you're a parent and you have a child that has developmental has, uh, delays, you know, nine months is an eternity. And so we really think that this program is going to be extremely attractive towards preparing more individuals in speech and language therapy um, and so uh, that's the first program the second program is uh, a physician's assistant program high need area uh, for that in our region as well mm -hmm. and uh, we're slotted to start this fall uh, in fact we're waiting for the final confirmation of accreditation um, to, to start in october and uh, we've got 35 slots in the first cohort we had a thousand applications for 35 slots. That tells you a little bit about the needs nationally. Uh, and then the next program is slotted to begin the fall of 21 is a doctoral program in physical therapy. And then in fall of 22, we'll launch a doctoral program in occupational therapy. You know, all of these programs are high need uh, uh, areas for our region. And, uh, and really high needs for the whole country. And so I, I think it'll bring a, a tremendous opportunity for the university, but then also some great opportunity for uh, Montgomery to, to uh, attract people and professionals in this field and uh, in our region. Well, now I, I have a friend actually in Florida that wanted me to ask this question specifically uh, just to get a little bit of clarification because she was wondering about it. She's actually a nurse down in Pensacola and she was wondering, being a member of the Church of Christ and being very active with their youth group who, you know, were coming up on being college age, if there was going to be a nursing program specifically, is, is that the physician assistant or uh, exactly what does that look like? Well, 
Well, we are we are looking at nursing. Obviously, nursing uh, gets a lot of uh, press as, as all the healthcare disciplines. Uh, obviously, the shortage in nursing is is epidemic really all throughout, and uh, we are certainly looking at nursing, and uh, uh, and that could be on the horizon. You know, after these four programs are launched, uh, obviously, we, uh, she's not the first to ask that question. Uh, in fact, uh, we have a lot of you know public policy folks and uh, practitioners that love it. I got to say, I think that those programs are going to be incredibly helpful. And you were talking about the popularity of and and that popularity comes mostly from a need for some of these majors and some of these programs. And and I can attest to that even myself, because, uh, of course, I I went to Faulkner and Auburn. I split up my education between those two institutions when I was doing my undergraduate work. And uh, whenever I was hitting on a girl and when I say hitting on, I mean, getting shot down by a girl. Um, like nine times out of ten, she was a speech pathology major. So that's a very, very popular program right now. Um, and, and of course, what you talked about, there being just such a deep need for each of these different departments and these different majors, uh, that really serves two purposes, is that it serves the community by training people in those areas and also serves the community by providing a, an educational program for a fulfilling career for a lot of our local people and our, our students that, that can be drawn to the community as well. From a facility standpoint, what is the long-term goal for this? Because we've talked a lot about the programs that will be offered, and of course that's the most important part, but also like, what is the facility going to look like? I've heard uh, some reports that sound a little confusing, that they're saying that we're going to set up in the old Burlington Coat Factory, and then some are saying we're going to tear that down and and build a brand new facility. So in the long term, what exactly does that spot of land look like for Faulkner University? Well, I think, you know, it'll be a process, Caleb. You know, the first step is to transforming the old Burlington Coat Factory building, which is about an 85,000-square-foot facility. That will be transformed. And uh, if you look at the – go to the Faulkner website, we've got an artist rendering. It, it really doesn't look like the old – the same building, but that building will be transformed uh, into – uh, housing these four ac- academic programs. And then over time, we're going to continue to uh, uh, invest in that property and just integrate it into the uh, Faulkner campus. There's some current uh, tenants that uh, lease spots from us, and we're going to maintain those relationships. And, uh, you know, and as we maybe have opportunity to, to grow into other areas of that uh property will do so but that that will be over time i got you well that somewhat answers a question that i had because as much as i love faulkner and love to see this expansion think it's a really good move for the university i also like one of my initial thoughts was oh my gosh what happens to mr chins <laughs> so. oh yeah absolutely yeah we we uh, we offend uh, half of montgomery if we told him that uh, mr chins and lex uh, uh was uh, not going to be there and so yeah those are two uh just anchor places there in the property and obviously the mayor is interested in the probate court and Mm -hmm. we want the probate court to be there and so uh this will be a process working together looking towards the future certainly and i'm sure that those will evolve over time and we'll try to keep everybody uh aware of what's going on there uh one of the things that i wanted to ask is because I, i think we're going a little bit more general here uh I mean, what is the value of somebody that is interested in any of these majors but just has had to kind of overlook Faulkner because they, they didn't have these majors previously, they didn't have these programs for them to take advantage of? 
uh, I think that this is a great boon for people that really want a Christian education, a education that comes from a God worldview sort of mindset, uh, but just hasn't been able to get it yet because Faulkner hasn't offered these programs. I think this adds tremendous value to them and in, in our recruiting ability as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, in our first uh, cohort in the speech and language therapy, we had students really come from literally all over the country uh, for our first cohort. And, and uh, many of them did not go to a faith-based undergraduate college. And, and so their introduction to, you know, a Christian university was really eye-opening. In our first uh, cohort uh, uh, in the speech and language therapy, we literally attracted students from all over the country. And most of them uh, did not come from an undergraduate college at a faith-based institution. Mm-hmm. So th- this was their first time. And uh, many of them had a wonderful college experience at Faulkner and really got to see a distinctively Christian perspective on healthcare and uh, and how we really approach it holistically and try to, you know, meet the needs not just physically but emotionally and spiritually of uh the clients that we uh, uh, are putting our path, and so um, it's a really good opportunity for us to broaden the sphere of Christian education in, a, in this new arena. Well, I couldn't agree more. And if there's any occupation where you would need to have a, I think that it would be very beneficial to have Christian ethics and a Christian worldview. I mean, you would think that healthcare services would be right at the tip top of that list. Yeah, absolutely. And one facet that we haven't talked about, Caleb, it is a really important uh, part of this uh, project uh, that we're bringing these four programs together. But one of the things that's going to be kind of the nucleus of this uh, effort is going to be a uh, an autism center. And, uh, you know, autism is on rising at epidemic levels throughout the country and even in the River region. Mm-hmm. And there's just not... You know, we're 90 miles away from a comprehensive autism center in Montgomery. And uh, so we're uh, we're planning to launch a, a center, and this gives us a tremendous ministry opportunity to meet uh, not just the, the clinical needs of some parents and, parents and children in our community, uh, but obviously this is uh, those types of uh, diagnoses sometimes come with some very challenging uh, things with it. And uh, and so this is really an opportunity for us to prepare professionals to really meet the needs of uh, this community or this segment of our community. You know, that's one thing that I've always really loved about working with you and working for Faulkner University is that it seems like every single move we make has two aspects of it. It has the aspect of what's good for the university. And in this sense, that's, of course, being able to draw in more students, be able to bring more people uh, into Faulkner. But then there's the secondary aspect that you just alluded to of how are we going to use this to build up the community and spread the gospel of Christ? And I mean, I think this is just a fantastic uh, opportunity for that and and something that Faulkner has always really put a focus on, which is something I greatly appreciate. So uh, with all that being said, what would you say to parents right now that are contemplating either sending their kids to Faulkner or people, uh, students or, or even adults in our adult education program that are considering Faulkner uh, in the future? Yeah, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate the question. I think, obviously, you know, from my perspective, after working in higher education for 35 years now, you know, I, I'm more convinced that the choice that a person makes to go to college 
is probably one of the most significant life-shaping decisions that they make in their whole life. Mm. In fact, I would say it's a top three, only outranked by a decision to follow Jesus Christ and who they marry. And then after that, you're going to be hard-pressed to convince me that there's a decision that has more life-shaping implications than where you go to college. And uh, it's important because it's so much beyond professional. I think when you go off to college, you really do reassess your values and what you're going to base your life on. And uh, and I believe uh, an institution like Faulkner really understands that process and helps you know young men and women really come to know who they are, what they're called to be, and uh, it's just critical. So that that's you know number one, but Going back to your last point as far as, you know, one of the things being good for the university, good for the community, that's what you want. That's what I think God has created this to be, is to be relevant to the community. He's equipped us with gifts to uh, extend uh, his grace and restore the world to what he intended to, from the beginning. And so, to me, coming to Boston University is like the extension of the mission. It's about preparing young men and women to really run the communities and be a part of the solution. And, you know, I've always appreciated that both you and, and the other people that I've had the pleasure to work with at Faulkner have always seen it that way, that it's it's a ministry as well as a, a college and a university, and those two things work together in a, in a great way uh, seamlessly as well. Um, so if somebody was interested that we were just talking about, uh, where would they go to get more information? Who could they talk to? Yeah, they could go to the website, and then that's got all the contact information for the Office of Admission uh, and for the traditional students or under, you know, students graduating from high school uh, looking at Faulkner. And then, obviously, we can direct them to these uh, these different directors and deans of the graduate professional programs in the health sciences if they have a particular interest in those areas. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us, President Williams, and especially being a trooper through uh, driving through Mississippi and losing reception several times and still working with me. We had some uh, technical issues there, but we overcame. Well, well, thank you, Caleb. I appreciate being a part of the program today. And I know your your listener base is our people of faith. They're people that really do uh, have a lot of shared vision with Faulkner and uh, as far as what faith can do in the community and so we're just honored to be a part of the program today well thank you so much and uh hopefully we'll be able to you know because it's been a while since i've been at faulkner now and we've never actually done this before hopefully it won't be uh, as long before we get to have you back on the program again thank you for your time great anytime Kayla. thank you All right that was president mike williams of faulkner university and like i said just uh Fantastic guy, somebody that I really look up to and admire, uh, both for his leadership ability as a president and also just as a, a very godly man and, and somebody that I really admire because of that. But uh, I think this is just going to be such a fantastic opportunity for the city of Montgomery. I know that the city of Montgomery is not the one doing it, but just having Faulkner here has just been such a blessing. And uh, I think that it's going to be something that really helps out Montgomery as a whole and, and probably something that's going to help us out for years and years to come as this thing continues to develop. So what we'll do is we'll take another quick break and we'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. 
1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. For our Chaplain's Report today, we are going to be continuing our series in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, for those of you who may have not seen the rest of the series or may not be familiar with this passage of Scripture, the only setup you really need to know is Saul, who is king of Israel at this time, he and his son Jonathan have gone out with the army there at Israel, and they have been fighting the Philistines, and God has already essentially granted them victory. So what is going on now is the Israelites are spoiling the Philistines. They are chasing after them. They are in pursuit. The Philistine army is scattered and running away and scared. Then the only thing really left to do is for the children of Israel to pursue after them and to take anything that they they have. It's, you know, the spoils of war or whatever. And so this is really what has, has taken place right before this scene develops here that we're going to look at in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 32 through 35, where it says, The people rushed greedily upon the spoil, and took the sheep and oxen and calves, and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep, and the slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord, and it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. In this little episode, we see greed and haste. We see greed because people are actually going out and spoiling the Philistines, and they're like, oh, look at all this stuff. We can go ahead and grab it up, and let's grab it right now. And the way that you know that greed is taking place well, partly because it actually uses the word greed, which is always real helpful when you're doing Bible analytics is when it actually says what was going on, uh, where it just comes out and, and plainly tells you. But even if the word greed weren't there, just by describing their actions, I think that it would be pretty easy to pick up on that. Because why are they acting like this? Why are they going through there like a pack of wild animals and eating the animals and eating it with the blood and based on the indication, the context of the scripture, it almost actually sounds like they're not even cooking it. That they're literally just, as soon as they can get their hand on some of the Philistines' livestock, they do, and then they slaughter it right there, and then they just start eating. And that's why they're not taking time to have it killed properly according to the Jewish law, and having it clean and cleansed and cooked and, and have the blood drained out of it and all this stuff. Why would they do that? What's their motivation? You see, they're so terrified that some other Israelite might see the spoil and take it for himself that they're just basically trying to get it all there. It would be kind of like if you went to one of these big buffet-style restaurants like your, your Golden Corral or something like that, 
And they basically came out with all the food and said, all right, you can eat as much as you want, but there's a really big crowd of people, and uh, once it's gone, we're not cooking anything else. Frankly, I'm glad that they don't do that, because you would probably see even modern American people turn into ravenous savages. I mean, sometimes you see that anyway, when they know that there's more coming out, they're just upset that there's not more there right now. And so human beings really haven't changed much in the, the centuries and, and millennia since this episode takes place with Saul. They're so greedy, they want to take advantage of everything in their sight, and they go out of their way and actually defy the law of Moses, eat the meat uncooked, eat it without the blood, just because they want themselves to have it and nobody else. They're acting like savages. They're going out there and acting exactly the same way as if a wolf had taken down a pack of some kind of animal. They're fighting off the other wolves. They're like going and, and grabbing it as quickly as they can and just basically gorging themselves and eating as fast as they can with no concern of, of what's right or what's good or what's decent. They just don't care. They're going through this like animals. They are not behaving like human beings. They are certainly not behaving as image bearers of God. And in their haste, in their greedy rage, trying to keep everybody else from getting their stuff or getting what is due them, they are breaking these laws. Greed and haste are a deadly combination. And whenever we find ourselves in that mode, in that sort of frenzy mode, which uh, hopefully you don't see yourself getting into that all that often, but... Uh, you don't think that there's examples of this in, in modern America? I mean, every Black Friday we see internet videos of some crazy woman beating another woman just to save a few bucks on a TV. We, we kind of like to look at these Bible stories and look a little bit down on them and think how much more evolved and sophisticated we are. Guys, we're the same as we always were. The human race hasn't changed. God created us. We're no different, really, than Adam and Eve in that sense. Human nature remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, when we look at this, we can see a lot of ourselves in this if we're not careful, if we don't temper ourselves, and if we are not living by the Word of God, living by His codes. Because it's so easy for a person that doesn't have discipline, which, by the way, is the root word of disciple. It's so easy for somebody that doesn't have discipline, that doesn't bind himself to the laws of God and determine ahead of time, before he's put in a situation where greed could take over, how he is going to act and behave and conduct himself. The men in Israel here, they haven't. They haven't done that. What the men of Israel have done here is basically just decided amongst themselves without, you know, conferring with anyone, just doing what comes naturally to them, acting on instinct, that they're going to go through this like a pack of wolves, devouring everything that they see. And what Saul does here is, is actually pretty interesting because what they have put on display is a lack of contentment and a lack of faith. 
They are not content with what they have. They are not content with God giving them the victory. They're not even content with God giving them this massive spoil to where they can go out and basically have their choice of whatever the Philistines had. They're not content with that. They want more. They want as much as they can possibly get. And it also shows a lack of faith, doesn't it? A lack of faith that God's going to take care of them. A lack of faith that if they're not the first person there or the first person that can slaughter this animal, that, that God's going to be able to provide for them. I mean, in so many ways, it reflects how we are today. When we are so worried and so anxious about, you know, what, what's going to happen with our job or, or what's going to happen with our with current events, the coronavirus or China or Russia or whatever else it is, being overly worried about it, being overly anxious about that, being concerned that we got to go ahead and get ours or, or what we've seen over the past few weeks where people were attacking one another for rolls of toilet paper or a, a crate of paper towels. It shows a lack of faith that God is going to take care of us, that we're willing to debase ourselves basically into animals acting on sheer instinct as opposed to reason and logic and thought and a code of conduct that God has set out for us in a manner in which we are to behave. That we jettison all that for this sort of animalistic rage, this animalistic response to having so much put in front of us. And gang, we live in a land where this is basically every day. Yeah, it's been a, a little rough the past couple months, but I mean, in America, we've got basically everything you could want and ten times more of that, and even the poorest among us are the richest people in the world. Every single day for us is basically this event. These people may have legitimately had to worry about where their next meal was coming, and God didn't even deem it acceptable behavior considering all things. Now, did the fast that happened directly before this have anything to do with it? Frankly, I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily right to speculate on that. We already had that lesson. But either way, even if they had, had not been through a fast, that's still no excuse. Even if their stomachs were completely empty, they haven't eaten all day, that still does not excuse this kind of behavior. And because there is that lack of contentment, that lack of faith, Saul actually does something that's uh, pretty smart. What Saul's response is, is that have people bring what they have, their, their, oxen, uh, their oxen or their sheep or whatever they have spoiled from the Philistines, whatever they have gathered together, bring them here, we'll do this the right way. We're going to have it killed the right way, we're going to cook it, we're going to let them partake, and more importantly, I'm going to build this altar to God and we are going to make proper sacrifice to show our gratitude for what we have been given. This is actually... To, to set the stage here a little bit, to give us a nice mental image to help us understand what is going on in this scene, it's kind of like when you've got a big family come together for Thanksgiving and everybody sits down and then just automatically 
just starts grabbing everything and, and you know, we g- grab a whole basket of rolls because we're afraid that our brother, or our sister, or our cousin might get some rolls. And so we want, we want all that for us. And so we're just, we're not even worrying about putting butter on it or anything like that. We're just double fisting rolls or double fisting turkey or, or mashed potatoes and gravy. Everyone's acting like animals. We're not even worried about the silverware. And finally what happens is dad says, hey, knock it off. Let's be grateful for this. Let's say grace. That's a pretty good illustration of what just happened. And even though, like I've said so many times when going through the story of Saul, even though we do see him primarily as an antagonist because of what happens between him and David later in life, Saul shows a great deal of spiritual maturity and wisdom in this. His response to this is, let's give God thanks for what we've been given, as opposed to acting like this belongs to us and and we deserve it and all of this. Let's go and actually give an offering to God, first of all, to atone for the sin of acting the way that we have acted. And, And second of all, if people have to actually bring their stuff here first, think about what that does. That gives you time to think to contemplate, to settle down, and to start engaging your human reason in response to all of this. With a very simple thing, Saul actually diffuses the situation and seems to set everything more or less right. And I do think that the other lesson in this is that repentance ought not be delayed. When we realize that we have done something wrong, that repentance ought to be swift immediate if possible. Just like Saul didn't say, all right, well, I'll tell you what, we're, we're going to head a, go ahead and round up all the livestock that we've gathered, everything, and, and once we get back to Jerusalem, we'll handle that. It's not what Saul does. What Saul does here is he says, uh, we're going to build an altar to God right here, right now, and we're going to go ahead and show him how grateful we are for the victory that he's given us and the spoils that he has allowed us to have. He doesn't say it in in so many words, but that's essentially what his actions dictate to his army. That that's how we are supposed to behave. And it works. And another reason that I think it's so important that repentance needs to not be delayed, it needs to be basically immediate or very soon after the transgression, if at all possible, is that lessens the risk of relapse. If you commit some kind of sin and you just kind of dawdle around about it and don't pray about it, pray for forgiveness, don't meditate on it, there's a good chance you're going to do that again before you get to all that. And that's why it's so important to make your repentance almost immediate is because it does lessen that chance of you falling back into that same sin again. And I think that Saul realized that here as well, that if we're going to do this and we're going to do it right, it would be better to go ahead and do it right now so people understand A, the severity of it, and B, they need to be a little bit more contemplative to have a little more faith in God, that kind of thing. And so this was a really, really good way to handle this. But ultimately, what I think it goes back to, and I think that this is the lesson that we need to take away from this, God's army is not supposed to be a pack of wild animals. God's kingdom is supposed to look different from the rest of the world. We're not supposed to react to things the way that normal people would react. 
we do have that kind of faith. We do have that kind of contentment that shows that we don't have to be pillaging through everything that, that comes our way and trying to desperately cling on to everything we can get our greedy little hands on. And that ultimately comes because we know that God's going to take care of us regardless. We, we don't have to be that person. And so, ultimately, adopting that attitude that was in Christ, that, that attitude of contentment, that attitude of knowing that God is going to provide, that anything that we need on our mission we will be equipped to handle, regardless of what it is. And to be content with the things that we already have and, and realize that we don't just need to be hoarding everything or, or grabbing as much as we can, as, as quickly as we can, and keeping other people from getting it first. That's what God's army is supposed to look like. That's what being a member of the body of, of Christ, what being a member of the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like, that other people should see our reactions to events like this, that other people should look at us and go, hmm, we're acting pretty different. Calm, collected, in control, acting like a civilized human being, not an animal. Because ultimately, if we're going to be the salt and light to the world that we're supposed to be, that's how people are going to have to react to us. And they're not going to do it unless we give them a good reason to. And so ultimately, I think that that is our calling, that we have to act differently than the rest of the world. We have to act as though we are operating by a different set of rules than everybody else is. Because we are. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.